Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often, they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. This is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael. And today we welcome back to the show, Reverend Jim McGrath. And he is going to be talking about the concept of sin from a Christian theological perspective, which we're really excited about. For those of you who have not uh, heard Jim yet on our show, he is uh, the pastor at Gateway Christian Church, and he studied at Princeton Theological Seminary and also uh, at Claremont School of Theology. And he's also a screenwriter, a playwright, and just a very interesting person. So before we get started on this, uh, I think it's going to be a hot topic. <laughs> Let's have. Uh, I, I gotta, I gotta clear up that I'm not the pastor of Gateway. Uh, I'm the associate pastor. Oh, sorry. He's the associate pastor at Gateway. So pardon me for that. So, yes. Michael, why don't you go on with the announcements? Hey, everybody, and welcome again to our, our show. And we're really happy to have you guys with us. Um, it's been a, a great journey. We're, we're well over a thousand subscribers now. And if you enjoy our show, that's one of the best things you can do to help us. Just, just hit that like and subscribe button. And it really does make a huge difference. And it just makes us feel good to see our audience growing. And so by all means, you know. Go ahead and subscribe. We're happy to have you. Um, next week is going to be Spell It Out. So it's Krista's free-for-all, and she will tell us you know, somewhere down the road what it's going to be the topic, but it should be a lot of fun as always. We've got some really great guests coming up in June, um, and one of the highlights, we're going to put together another two-hour special with some of our magical friends, so some ceremonial magicians and some more of a kitchen witch practitioners, and we're going to get into some magic. That'll be a two-hour special, so we're going to let you guys know about that as we get it all fleshed out. Um, you can get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com, S-I-X-T-H. Just, uh, and while you're visiting there, if you want to buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi, it certainly helps us to cover some of our expenses, but we do this for the love of doing it, and if you can't afford a coffee for us, we're more than happy to have you as our guest anyway, so it's not mandatory. Um, but it is nice. Um, and then you can subscribe to our newsletter, all that kind of great stuff. So lots to do, um, and this is going to be a great topic. I'm excited, and Jim has been a friend of mine for almost 20 years now, So, and we, we've had many great discussions, so it's always a joy to have him. So I'm going to kick it back to Krista and Jim, so take it away, Krista. Great. Thanks a lot, Michael. Yeah, I think I'm going to be talking about intuition on my next Spell It Out, since I'm on sort of a, a divination um, theme that I've been doing. So let's get to this show, though, because we have a lot to cover. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you. It's great to be back. And I hope you are doing well. I'm doing fine. Great. So let's get going on, since I know we have a lot to cover from the theological perspective alone. So let's get started on what that is. Okay. Well, I think, I'm, and I'm going to be speaking for the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, I'm not really that knowledgeable about Eastern religions, so I invite you to come in with, with that perspective at any point. But the uh, of the Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam are religions of law. And the so that in those traditions, a person's identity as a godly person is expressed through observation of laws and obeying laws and worshiping the way it is prescribed. And I want to point out that uh, back in back in the day, there was no difference between religious law and civil law. Uh, today there is, which is kind of a different situation. But at that time, law is something that was that that came from God, and so the concept of sin is related to the concept of law. If you break a law, you sin. You break a law of God, and uh, so in Christianity there is less of an emphasis placed on law 
there is an assumption that sin is something that is with us all, always, an assumption. Uh, so uh, Christians don't exactly say you're free from God's law, uh, and we have the Old Testament uh, with the New Testament in our Bible, so there is certainly a reference to law, uh, but there is a slight de-emphasization of law, and, and sin is not so much defined as being uh, an act against God's law. It's defined as being something in human nature. Now, when the the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, were in development as sort of, you know, the, the voice of Christianity in the Western world, sin became something that was categorized in a more legalistic system. In other words, sin was ranked. There were venial sins. There are sins, again, you know, mortal sins. And there was an equation, a mathematical equation almost, in, in saying what you do to make up for each sin. This is what you do. You say 12 Hail, Hail Marys. You, you know, the, that there was a system that was devised to deal with the propitiation of sin. And then that system runs aground in the, in the, at the time of the Protestant Reformation or during the Renaissance when the, the papacy was seen as being basically, you give me your money, I'll forgive your sin. You know, the, uh, uh, that it became that kind of a thing, which took us away from any real relation uh, with God. That was that's the Protestant view. I'm stressing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a Catholic might define all that in a very different way. So you know you have these different concepts of sin in Christianity. We are seen as coming in with original sin. Uh, in a sense, we have inherited the original sin of Adam and Eve, and so we we are sinful by nature. There are Christians who believe that once you've been baptized you sin no more. And that's, in my opinion, kind of a problematic understanding. Uh, the, the good in, in having an understanding that we are all sinners, I think that's good if it keeps us in the realm of understanding that we're all human beings and that that's, we're human and fallible. And that's an important thing to remember and understand if, if you're going to function well in the world. If you don't have a sense of yourself as being fallible, I think that's problematic. So, so that's the good is that it keeps everybody understanding that you know we all have nobody's superior in that regard. We all have problems with sin, uh, and and the other positive thing about sin, of course, is having an understanding and a concept of sin, and that it's bad. It, it keeps people from becoming sociopaths, or it helps to do that. You know, if, if there were no understanding of that, I think people would behave in a very different way. Do you think there are some con general consensus across the board with the Abrahamic religions of what examples of sin are? Because it seems from my perspective, my little bit of understanding of Christianity, that there's different people talking about different sins, getting it from different places. So there is there some sort of consensus of these are the primary sins or well I think the Ten Commandments, uh, which you know the the Muslims have the same Ten Commandments that the Christians have and the Jews have. We all start with that, uh, with Mosaic law. And and then in Christianity we have these books, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which amplify those laws. I mean, I, I'm sorry, that's that's in the Hebrew Bible. That's in the Torah. It's part of the Torah. These books amplify those laws, and in them, Moses is sort of appropriating the current situation that the Jews are living in. You know, so so he's saying, this is how you make your food. This is how you... He's, he's addressing specific situations. And then we move to Christianity with the letters of Paul, in which he's addressing specific situations. He's addressing uh, a Greco-Roman world that is fine with the sacrificing children on the altar, uh, having sex on the altar, you know, de de dealing with a culture that accepts all of these things. 
and so that the Christian culture is defining itself by their non-acceptance of it. So, you know, listening to you, I was thinking about, you know, the whole concept of um, the human body and and giving birth. And, and, and this might have a little bit of, of some comparison in Buddhism, the idea of it seems like from from my perspective, again, that there's something not right about coming from a woman's body like there's something sinful about yes, that yes. and and that even in buddhism you have buddhas born from a virginal woman like it's a virgin birth and that's how they get around that even though we know that's just not possible that if you're here in a human body you have come through a woman that is a really good point uh because th- there there is this uh putting sin lacing it in with mortality and so that to be living in a sinful way is is seen as to be perishable which we all are and the the taboo about everything having to do with the woman's body menstruation you know everything uh it it does give us that sense that to be born of a woman of a mortal woman is in some way sinful or nasty. And, and, and as you said, that's why we have to have these virgin birth stories to explain someone who is sinless, you know, who, who, or, or who is sin, seen as sinless. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a real problem, and it's, it puts a disproportional uh, amount of sin upon the woman, which is a real problem with current day Christianity. Well, I, I think that, that there's a, a depth and complexity to the hatred of the female body. That's when you get into misogyny, which is of course a much even worse thing than sexism, where you just outright hate the woman. And and that that's a long and deep issue that I think goes behind uh, a lot of, of different things, including women feeling that way about their bodies when you look at the uh, eating disorders, and the overemphasis, even even today, when women have a lot of other choices in life to do, that we can be president, we can, we I think find that we're valued more for how we look in our body, and and that that the body is also it's like that that polarity. It's like you know um, the the power of the female body, and then the seductive female. We we still live in that paradigm. I think it's very hard to just be a human being. For me, as a woman. Well, and in evangelical Christianity, there is nothing sinful about sexism. Nothing. Really? You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's no, you know, when, whenever people outside of the world of evangelicalism sees somebody being accepted by evangelicals like Trump, say, or uh, fall well, you know, that they, they, they have so obviously, uh, you know, had women and, you know, taken advantage of women and whatnot. And, and people from outside of evangelicalism keep saying, well, when are they going to admit, you know, when are they going to admit that this is, uh, that these people are hypocritical and they won't ever admit it because they don't see it as hypocritical. They don't have any problem with anything you might do to a woman. And, and this comes right down to the, the whole pro-life movement. It's that there is this sense that, well, the defense of being pro-life is that we're for life. We're advocates for the unborn baby. The unborn baby, the, the, uh, you know, is, is a human being, but at no point do they say the woman is a human being. Hmm, That's a really good point. This is absent from, from, from what they're doing. And that's a real big problem. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I go to a, I'm a, a associate pastor at a fairly liberal church and there are liberal churches who, who would see it differently. Uh, but, but they're not the ones representing Christianity right now. Well, wasn't, I forget when it was, how long it was where women were not seen to have a soul, very similar to black people until like the early 1900s. And I always found that very perplexing. Okay, 
ah, the woman does not have a soul, but she gives birth to the boy who becomes a man who does have a soul. How very well, no, interesting. <laughs> in, in, in what tradition is that? I, I forget. I, I think it was soul. just philosophically, because I remember I was reading something about, you know, um, law and it was more suffragette kinds of things. So it was in it was in an English book and. And I don't know, I can't, it was years and years ago, and I remember just thinking, what a peculiar idea. <laughs> and it stuck with me because I thought, who thought of that? You know, how, you know, but it, it made sense to me. If you think of a woman as not having a soul, then you could treat the woman however you like without feeling bad because it's not really a person. It's, she's not a, she doesn't have a soul, you know. Kind of like how people see animals too, like they think, oh, animals have no souls and I'm not comparing women to animals. Well, I'm perfectly fine to be compared to an animal personally. Some of them are better than people I know. So well, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, how could you spend any time around any animal and not think the animal had a soul? That's they, really they, they hard have to so understand. much soul. I mean, it's like amazing how much soul that they have. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's they're, very they're, similar. They're like pure soul and no, yeah. no intellect, pure soul. You right. know, it's... Uh, but I, I just I want to go back to this idea about the woman not having a soul because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and these are, I will admit, sexist documents, uh, but there's all kinds of examples of women having souls mm -hmm. in 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 scripture. I mean the the uh, the idea that the woman wouldn't have a soul, that's a I, I don't know where that comes from. It's there. I'll have to dig it out for you. But I remember reading it because I, like I said, I was a young woman doing some research, something for a paper. And I, it's, it, and again, it, it may not be a Christian theological thing, but it was, I remember there was some kind of ruling or something where it was declared that she did have a soul. And so that's why I remembered it. So it was like a, almost like a legal thing. So. Boy, that, that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty deep misunderstanding. And, and you'd have to never have known a woman to believe it. It just, it seems to me, I mean, that, that's, uh, <sighs> I, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, the, in, in Christianity, there is, uh, you know, that dichotomy that we've discussed on this show before. You have the two Marys, the virgin and the whore is how we view them, which is not really, of course, accurate in either case right uh but 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 that is how they work their way into the unconscious of people in the culture that we live in mm -hmm. uh that that that's you know that's that that a woman is so full of sin that the only way we can appreciate a woman is that this is the rare woman who has no sin and has not been touched by sex or sexuality or whatever it's it's and and in the islamic world there is this awful thing where you know you if you really want to curse somebody you leave you know a used tampon in their desk drawer and that's just the end you know that's the ultimate insult so there's that hatred of the physical processes of womanhood mm -hmm. that is Wow. I mean, that is, and the fear of it and all of that, very problematic. And, and, results. well, I, I, I do understand. I, I watched a great BBC series called Call the Midwife, and every single episode, and it was based on a real memoir of a nurse in um, East London, in like a very poor part of London in like the 50s, 1950s really well done. It was um, so every, every episode had a birth in it of some kind. And it was pretty graphic in a, in a good way. And to see that many all the time, but also to see um, people, the doctor is really good too, and the midwife completely dedicated to bringing these babies in no matter who it was, no matter how they got pregnant, no matter how poor they were. It was really, it was a touching, remarkable, and it was also like, whoa, some of the pain the women go through and all the complications. You just, when you really start thinking about it, you can see where birth is intense and frightening and awful and, and beautiful yeah. and messy. And, and the woman is like, you know, screaming, you know, and, and I can see it's just very powerful. So, I mean, I know like, for instance, women have reclaimed that 
that isolating um, from uh, uh, men during their menstrual cycle as an act of power, that that's a time that they have, I think it's called the red tent movement, where instead of it being a, a, a shameful thing, it's a time for women to really feel their power in their body. And it's a really magical time. And, and they've managed to start to really change that psychological uh, shame around it into something really what it should be. It is a very powerful time. And, and, and so I, I think that uh, one of the things I did want to talk a little bit about, too, before we get more towards all the, the female stuff, because that's going to be endless, um, is just what, <laughs> what, what did Jesus do that was different um, with sin in the, in the New Testament? So what, what, did okay. he, what did he bring into the equation? Okay, well, there's this sense, there's the line somewhere in the Bible, if I were really smart, I'd quote it directly, but it says, Jesus is the judge. And, and that means that we are not empowered to judge each other about sin. It is not something that we are empowered. We have to turn all of that over to Jesus. When Jesus makes a judgment about somebody's sin, Jesus does so from a point of view of total sympathy with that person. In other words, is there some reason why they did it? Uh, you know, it, it's, and, and finds that place of innocence within it so that the sin can be forgiven. That in, and, and that's a thing that we do in Christianity that's a little different from other religions is we put it all on Jesus. The, uh, the idea that we have to be punished for our sins, no. Jesus died on the cross. He covered it. Uh, he, he took all the punishment for us. Uh, now, I, there's a movement today questioning all of that, of course, and questioning the idea that, that God would need for Jesus to die. Uh, all of that is, I believe, within the next hundred years, going to be completely up for grabs. Mm. That, that Christian mythology and symbology will either change or Christianity will be gone and replaced by something else uh, because that's where we're headed. Okay. There's so been... I, I think this idea, I like this idea about the innocence that, that Jesus finds a place that is innocent and almost Within un- a sinner, yes. in a sinner. And it made me think of the, the Aeon concept of um, in the esoteric movement and the astrological movement, we have, we're leaving the aeon of the dying God. So that's Osiris, that's Jesus. And we are now in the age of the child, Horus. And, and, and when you think of a child, um, first of all, they're unruly for sure, but you do think of that idea of innocence. And um, it seems to me that one of the problems of sin, no matter how you look at it, even from, you know, even though I don't think Buddhists... Buddhism really has exactly a concept of sin. They, they do have this idea that being human is you want to get beyond it, that you want to be um, free from the cycle of rebirth. So they do think there's something inherently less about, even though the, at the same time they say the human body is very precious because it allows you to, to journey on the path of enlightenment. So it's a little confusing. But... Um, that idea of the innocence, I really like that the child, um, maybe that's where that concept needs to go to more, like taking that part out, because uh, one of the things that made me think of this topic is the shame that so much as so many people feel for no reason. Well, that, that shame is, uh, I mean, that's, that's what this really is all about. And, and whether or not God asks us to live with shame, I think could be questioned. Uh, that the, you know, for example, if if you're a Christian, you believe that that sin, if you believe that sins are forgiven, why shame? Uh, why? I mean, it's it's uh, theologically, it's forgiven, it's confessed, it's forgiven and done, clean slate. Uh, so why shame? In uh, now, it could be shame should be reserved for people who have not yet confessed or do not yet know or whatever. But and and I would say in Judaism, 
I don't know where it comes from, but among Jewish people, men and women of that uh, religion, whom I have known, there is much more of that sense of forgiveness than I see in Christians. I mean, there was oh. much more of that sense of, eh, we're all human, you know, it's, it's it, less shame, mm-hmm. in other words. Uh, shame is reserved for extreme situations and situations where shame is needed in order to get the person to see what they're doing, you know, in a, mm. in, to, to turn the person around. Uh, you know, the shame would be reserved, preferably would be reserved for that. But in getting back to the idea of sexism, uh, shame is the tool of sexism. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, it works. I, I mean, I, I, even people like me, like I wasn't raised in a religion. I was, because my parents were my father, I've said this before, my father was Jewish and my mother was Catholic and they decided not to raise us in a religion. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful for it on one hand, but, you know, you get all this through the culture. We are a Judeo-Christian culture, no matter what anyone says. Oh, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's seeping throughout the culture in every way. Absolutely. It's, it's even in paganism. They, they don't even see sometimes how Judeo-Christian they are. And and yeah. not all of them, but it but I can see it. I'm like, that's a very Judean Christian kind of view of things. And and it makes sense because it's been around for so long and it's well and, and probably isn't original with those religions. I mean, probably it was there in some form before, you know. But what I what I think that that also made me think I, it was actually something uh, one of the Buddhist teachers was talking about. And even though they don't really have that concept of sin, like I said, there is this idea that we have these kleshas, these emotions that cause us to perceive things wrong. And and there's a lot of what I notice in a lot of religions, there's all these there's a lot of purification practices. And, you know, I've been doing some and I, I like them on the one hand. But then I started thinking like, why do I have to be so purified all the time? I think I, I, I really think that comes from Old Testament law and and where things had to be purified or you'd get poisoned. You know, I mean like you, literally. You, yeah, I mean it was survival. And and we have today have modern methods of keeping food right and you know, washing our hands or whatever. Uh so maybe so, we've, we've taken it the wrong way. We, if you think, I mean, even in the esoteric traditions, I was listening to something about the second chakra and, and the woman, I actually turned it off because she's saying, well, most people's second chakra is really, you know, it's very wounded in this world. And that's, you know, has a lot to do with um, how you manifest things and power and uh, some, some of it's sexuality too and your emotions. And I thought, I don't need another person telling me that <laughs> I have to cleanse something. And and it, it just got me thinking about, you know, the Buddha even said there we have Buddha nature and we just have to recognize it, that it's not something you actually create. And according right. to Casey, Casey had this sort of more, you know, modern view of, of Christ, though he did read the Bible every year, um, that we have this Christ archetype within us, that it's not something you have to, to um, create. It's already there. And so I'm wondering sometimes if, if it's time for us to shed some of these concepts because it doesn't seem to be helping us to see these things easily. You know, it seems I, like I, it's... I, I would definitely agree with that. First of all, just to get back to the, the Buddhism thing, uh, I think in Buddhism, sin is, the idea of sin is replaced by the idea of clinging, the idea of being in the wheel of co- codependent arisings. Uh, so, so it's, it's less a reward punishment thing. It's just more, you're either released from that wheel or you're not, you know, and, and it's, it's your doing if you are, because you follow the, you know, you, you go to the kind of spiritual journey you need to go on in order to free yourself from that. So that's in many ways, I think a much more practical way of looking at it than sin. Uh, and, and to get back to, you know, we live today in a world where there is religious law, but there is also civil law, which is something different, which is there to protect citizens from getting killed, protect you from getting robbed, all of that stuff. 
which is necessary and is good. But since we have that, a lot of the purpose of religious law was to cover that too, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, because there was no difference back when these laws in scripture first came to be. And and also in the Ten Commandments, there is kind of an emphasis on idol worship and stuff like that, which we live in kind of a different world now. I mean, the right. idol worship is not a big problem. You know, when 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 people, I mean, not that it doesn't go on, but it's it's not a problem for society. Right. They don't make a big thing about it. Right. And back then it was a problem for society because it involved killing virgins and all sorts of inhumane acts. Uh, so that's something that's a little different today. And so, as you said, some of that stuff should really be discarded, uh, because it's not really, it's not really of any use to us anymore. But there, that's the thing that I find practical in Buddhism is there is the same sense of doing good for others, unselfishness, all this kind of stuff. But instead of just preaching it in in Buddhist literature, there is all kinds of step by step ways to go about it, to uh, ways that you can perfect that. And we don't have any of that in in the Jude- in the Judeo Christian tradition. We don't have any ways. Well, really but but I think that steps. if it seems like if you go deep enough with the study of it, if you produce people like Saint Francis, who was such a great human being, and he even was known to be able to speak to the animals and and a little bit I've read about some of his sayings it just seemed like he he was enlightened and I would agree I would agree that he epitomized that so he uh, he that managed value to do of it religion. <laughs> but you know do you see a bunch of saint francis's walking around today no no it's true uh, I I think that the eastern traditions have an advantage in that they have studied consciousness for thousands of years and when you yes. when you use the tools, because I know a lot of people, just like you know, people say they're Christians, but they do they don't practice. But when you actually use the tools, we now have methods where we can actually see what's happening with the brain, and so they can see that meditation over a long period of time. They've studied people affects the brain positively, and so that's another advantage. Is that this is where science can be helpful in in sort of seeing if religion works. <laughs> Well, I think I think you said kind of a magic word there when I'm talking about what's missing from the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that's uh, the whole idea of consciousness, the whole exploration. I mean, that's a whole world of exploration. It's true, and and you know because I I have always been kind of interested in sort of a little bit of all religions. I haven't had a chance to really look into Islam, but I'm sure I'll eventually get there. There are times I have really enjoyed. Uh, certain aspects of Christianity, and I've found myself, you know, really touched by certain stories, and and I can see moral value, I can see spiritual value, uh, but it, you know, you have to. I feel like one of the things we all have to do is we have to spend time with things, and and trust our own process with it, and that's something, of course, that a lot of churches have not really supported that that I don't have to be an expert to have the the teachings affect me. And even I've, I've had to work that out a little bit with Buddhism, but it's a little more relaxed in that, you know, I, they do teach you to trust your experiences, that you, as on the path, maybe I'm not going to go out there and be a llama, you know, because they have a lot of work they have to do to, to teach, right? But that doesn't mean my experiences aren't valid as a layperson. And, and perhaps that's another thing that should be emphasized more that in all religions is your own unique take on things and experience, and, and you don't have to be a scholar. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. But, and, but again, that's just all about emphasizing the kind of initiative that you have to take. And, and in Christianity... I don't see this in Judaism so much, but in Christianity, there is this sense, and it comes from the habit of putting everything on Christ, you know, uh, that there is little said about the effort needed, the personal initiative. So my question to you personally, so if if Christ did a lot of the work for us in terms of, you know, the, the idea of the crucifixion and 
you know, that he died to cover certain aspects of our sins, then, you know, what, what are you aiming to be? Are you aiming to be like Jesus in terms of as what he represented in his, his parables? Is that it? The kind of, because obviously you're not hoping to be crucified and that's already been done anyway. So that's not supposed to happen to people. Whereas, you know, so in Buddhism, you can become like the Buddha. Like you can become exactly in, in your own way, in your own style, the same as the Buddha. So it seems a little different to me and with Christianity. Well, it is because you can't, you know, there, there is no general understanding that you can be Christ. However, I want to point out that at the end of the Gospel of John, Christ's parting words to the disciples were these and greater miracles you will perform. And he, he calls them brothers, which brings them into sonship of God with him. So there is this message that I certainly take from it, that Christ is us. We are like Christ. That, you know, that him being the son of God is not a special thing. We are all sons and daughters of God. And in the same way, uh, we all have those things available to us that Christ had, that just he had developed them better, that we can heal people, we can do miracles, we can all of this stuff, uh, and that it is our mission to do so. Uh, it is our mission. This is an ignored mission in Christianity, but it is our mission to heal, to heal other people, to heal ourselves. Uh, you know, and, and that's something that doesn't really get explored because we have this fear built in that, well, we're sinners, so we can't do what Christ did. He was different. He was the one in history who was perfect. Uh, so you raise a good question in terms of what do we aspire to be? And I think according to Christ's teachings, what we are to aspire to be is healers. Mm, I like that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I decided to do a little bit of a, a search on some quotes about sin, and I did find an interesting one from Swami Vivekananda. He says, uh, quote, the Vedanta recognizes no sin. It only recognizes error. And the greatest error, says the Vedanta, is to say that you are weak, that you are a sinner, a miserable creature, and that you have no power and you cannot do this and that. And I have heard that in a, in a lighter way, um, a Buddhist teacher saying that you have to have confidence that you these teachings are going to work and that you have to have this sense of, I can do this and I can become enlightened. I am enlightened. But I laughed because it was like, the sin is to think you're a sinner. <laughs> it seems like it does. It seems like the polar opposite of, of, of what Christians say. Uh, so that's, I, I think that's interesting. And, and it also assumes something that is a part of Christ's teaching, uh, if you interpret it that way, uh, because that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is defined as being Christ on earth after his ascension. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is within. And so that's the journey that is not so often taken as we view ourselves as imperfect, you know, sinners, you know, perishing and all this, that Christ does live within everybody. Everybody. And the worst sinner, whoever, that Christ lives within. And so our initiative is to bring that part of ourselves out, to find it, to have faith that it is there. And that's where what you just read is so important, uh, that, you know, you, that you, it, it has to start with full confidence that it is there. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I, I wanted to bring up, and we talked about this before the show, was uh, unfortunately the way uh, a lot of religions see nature as being something either to escape or is part of because a woman's body is so connected to nature because we give birth that it's sort of wrapped up in such a way with sin that it's only when you get into the indigenous religions that rever nature and want to take care of it and understand it 
Um, and as a result, I really feel we are causing some of this destruction, not all of it, you know, but some of this destruction because of all of the implications of how we view the body, woman, and nature all wrapped up in this and sin earth. and earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that I remember when I was in college, I was a religion major and I, I in the introductory course, uh, uh, which was a survey of all religions, uh, they, they were talking about Hinduism and a woman in the class who was a Christian, this was her critique of Hinduism was that they just throw away creation. The idea that we're living in this illusory world and that we don't get to the real world until we give up on this illusory world, uh, that, that throws away creation. And that is a place where scripture definitely uh, empowers us as caretakers of creation and as completers of creation. And if you view, looking at the Holy Trinity, if you view the Son as the love principle uh, and the Father as the creative principle, it is when we turn to God, we are turning to the very act of creation. And we are summoning it, summoning creation as a part of our lives, something that we are able to do as well. So that that puts us right in the center of having to be and being empowered to be caretakers of nature, of the animals, of all of this. And I think an, a very Christian or Jewish argument or Islamic argument could be made for, you know, reverend, revering that role that we are to play. Yeah. And I, I and of course you do again have examples. I, I know, um, there was a group, a Zen group in, in um, New York State that they were really into nature. They even bought a, an island. And this was like in the 90s. And there are definitely groups, like subgroups within all of these traditions that know that. But it's just not, I think, popularly accepted. And um, and I still feel like there's some kind of a, a disconnect that, that sometimes religion is not what teaches us why nature is so incredible and why creation it sometimes you get it more from the poets you get it from much the, more oh, you know yeah. that i was just reading herman hess's poetry and and his talking about trees the way he talks about trees it's so beautiful and touching and and it just reminded me how much i love trees you know and and then there was a story about this tree that was was cut down for a service road in England that was over like it had been around in Mozart's time and and you just want to weep you're like why <laughs> why can't we see what these all, all these people have been seeing and and we're you know definitely pe people are trying to protect it but it's just not enough it's not enough in our consciousness and and I remember Rumi. when I went Rumi is another poet Rumi absolutely and but but and I, you. Your poetry is full of that. Yes, that's that because you know all you if you just spend some time walking around. I mean, I'm in Venice. It's 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 got natural beauty, it's, but it's not the mountains and it's got city life and it's amazing what you you see if you just take the time to look. It, it's it's I mean, I'll go down the same street and I'll see something different, you know. And I think it's um Maybe the idea that those spiritual traditions that talk about, you know, practicing the, the present, that's what they mean, that you take a time every day yes. where you're just there observing things and something will happen that's positive. So, but I, I get particularly upset. This is why I usually walk away from from any religion at some point is when, when I start to sniff that, the thing around Mother Nature that I just don't like, and, and I've left Buddhism for that reason, um, I think I'll never fully embrace a religion uh, because the more you study nature, the more you learn what animals really are like, because that's one of the things we can do now through videos. We get to know animals we never get to see and just how wonderful they are. How you could even remotely think that baffles me. <laughs> yeah, it, it upset me once when I was uh, back home at the State Fair of Texas and I I went to something as an adult that I had been to many times as a child, and it was the livestock show. And the you know I, I come my mother comes from a ranching family, 
and there is you're around animals all the time so why do you treat them so badly it's just it's very hard to understand uh seeing these people using the cattle prog to get the pigs out on stage and stuff like that it's like wow what you know how can you not feel these souls around you it's it's just it's baffling uh, I, I have no idea of that. And of course, my interpretation of Christ's uh, chasing away the money changers scene in, in the Gospels has always been he was protecting the animals. Oh. He, you know, that, that these people were there to huh. sell animals to be sacrificed on the altar in the temple. And that's what the money cha- that's what the money changing thing was about that people would come and they would pay for their animals that they would take in and kill. And I believe Christ was responding to the inhumanity of that action. As the prophets did before him, the prophets cried out against animal sacrifices, said God doesn't want them, but they kept doing them. And that is, so I, I think that there's something of that in the nature of Christ that has been downplayed. And I also mm. want to point out the, the in the current day, uh, with the evangelical movement, one of the things that gets in the way is this war against science. Mm. I mean, that you know, when you deal with the earth as something where the scientists say uh, that uh, they tell us that there is global warming and we need to change our behavior in order to protect the environment. And because the scientists say it, the evangelicals say, no, it's not true. They're lying to you again. Uh, but even if it's not true, why is it a good idea to make the water dirty, to make the air dirty? Why is that a good idea ever, it's even not, if global warming isn't true? It's it's not a good idea, and animals don't do that. But, you know, I think it, it comes down to, again, this whole disregard of uh, you know, when you think about it, I, I suppose, you know, we're saying that women get disproportionately, you know, sort of um, dumped on when it comes to sin. But that means also that men think this way about their own bodies, you know, that that we have this disconnect with the body to me is connected to our animal soul. And yes, there are things in our animal nature we're supposed to overcome and temper. That's, I know, a very Masonic idea. But I feel like we don't feed the animal soul. The animal soul is the part of us that has feelings and wants to be comfortable and wants love. And, and, and then there's this overemphasis on the spiritual nature of our being. And I feel like there should be a blend of the two. And the woman, for whatever reason, has been associated with the animal soul. And, and um, you, know, the, you know, women are hysterical, like, like you've never seen a hysterical man. <laughs> I have. You know, oh, but please. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, when I think about maybe there's some, like you were saying, some positive things about the concept of sin, if it can keep us on a good path, so you don't want to throw it out. But it seems like people do twist it to their agendas, you know, like it's sinful to be which, gay, which, you know, when, which would never be done. If people really took seriously that scripture line, Christ, Jesus is the judge. Yeah. That's people it. don't take that seriously. No, they, they they cherry pick. Well, not just that, but they take it upon themselves to be the arbiter of sin, to be the, to be the ones to decide what is sin, and to be the ones to decide how it should be punished, and and then work that into civil law, as as in the case of the uh, the attacks against Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want they want in a sense to use civil law to punish something that they view as sin, that they have judged as sin without any interest, especially the ones that say that abortion should be Ill, illegal even in cases of rape or incest. That's when unbelievable. That, when they go that far, yeah. uh, then, then there is no willingness to judge the individual situation whatsoever or to view the woman as a human being. Or to view the situation as this might have been caused by something other than the sin of a woman. You know, there, there's this refusal that, and the guy walks away. You know, the guy's, the guy's not brought into question at all. Well, that's always been the, the irony of the whole thing is that, that the woman has always been 
both the perpetrator and victim in these situations, which of course can't happen, that the man or boy or whoever has no culpability, like there's no one going around like, you know, trying to figure out ways to stop young men from doing certain things. It's always up to the 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 young woman or girl, like you said, even if it's rape, it's your fault on some level is really what they're saying. And I think evangelical Christianity is right uh, in support of that. That that they, you know, when you start with the assumption that they say is scriptural, and I would argue with that, uh, that a, a woman, you know, a man has to answer to God, woman has to answer to man. That the 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 head of the head of man is God, the head of woman is man. So that the man gets to tell her what to do and to go against what he says is a sin, because it say so right here in the Bible, you know. So that and and that's that's where that's at the base of so much of this, mm-hmm. where there is there is no understanding of rape, there is there is no actions to to curb men from their behavior the men are not taught i think they were better taught when i was a kid than they are today but uh, men are not taught respect of another person's human being of the humanity of the woman Mm -hmm. they're taught quite the opposite yeah no and 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 you're right you have to be taught these things and then again a lot of it is also um subliminal subconscious it comes through uh, negatively sometimes through certain forms of movies and and uh television shows and it's very it's very hard to combat um having you know like i'm 60 now and I've tried most of my life not to overemphasize the physical side of my life, other than I have to be aware, particularly when I was younger, that I could get pregnant. <laughs> and, but it's really a very tricky psychological problem that I think personally a lot of, not all females, there's some that seem to have bypassed it completely. Maybe it was, I don't know why they, they but there is this kind of thing you have to wrestle with all the time with how you value yourself if you don't if you don't feel like you look attractive as a female it really in a in a way overly upsets you when it shouldn't be that big a deal you know except for when you're young and then we're all like awkward looking (laughs) so it's it's one of those things you know it's pervasive and you just have to hope someday that culturally it'll be so different that it won't kind of seep into your subconscious even if you don't want it there, there's another thing I think uh, that is com- that complicates all this, and it goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, and that's the existence of advertising. And I, I, I don't think you can down. I, I don't think you can emphasize this enough. That ever since the beginning of the 20th century, 120 years or whatever, we the, the, this all of the science of advertising has to do with appealing to the repressed sexuality in everybody. So there is all this junk coming at us that is trying to draw that out, Mm -hmm. trying to draw out the sexuality within us in order to sell us something. And at the same time, we have these taboos in culture that say you can't do this, you can't do that. And it exacerbates the problem, in my view, that... uh, that we are being told in a subliminal way, like for a woman that to be sexy is your ultimate accomplishment, you know, to, to be appealing to the man, that's the ultimate. And, and for men, it's, you're being sold the good life, you know, of, of, of being this James Bond style stud being so attractive that you're able to pull this off. And that is in our psyches, man. And it's in so deep, I don't think people really understand how deeply in that is and how much trouble it causes. Absolutely. And then you're told you have all these very strict rules about sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you're right. I never thought about that's the conflict because you're subliminally told, hey, let's be sexy. And then, no, you can't only in this certain circumstance. And some of them are pretty rigid, you know, as far as like, you know, only if you're going to have a baby, some people believe. So it's it's true. And that but that goes down to the whole argument we were talking about earlier about human nature somehow 
is human nature, we have to decide, is being human a sinful thing? Are we here born into sin, which I don't believe. I don't believe it's helpful. And I think that we're, we're here to become fully human, whatever that looks like, because I don't think we've accomplished it. And I think that anything that takes you away from that, I'm not sure is a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree completely. I would agree completely. There's a lot, there's a lot in, in our culture in terms of what used to be called the counterculture. Now there is no such thing because everything's out there. Uh, but there, there are attempts to turn that around and to turn around what uh, a woman's image is. I think there's been great, been great progress made. And there is a big drive toward it to such an extent, and that, that's why one, of, one of the reasons why I predict the demise of Christianity for too long is that this conscious, this consciousness that women are developing, and that men are developing as well, uh, will make it seem absurd, will make many of the tenets of Christianity seem absurd. Well, how about the idea of a new Bible? Why not? There was a, how, how about something after the New Testament? Well, that will, but that, I, that's what I'm saying, unless that comes along. Mm. You know, and, and I've said this on your show before, but uh, the, the reticence of the Roman Catholic Church to ordain women in this day is just dinosaur time. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that they have yet to come around to that. Uh, I, it, just, it just blows my mind. Uh, because, you know, and they even talk about, well, maybe we should let priests marry. Maybe that's what we should do. It's like, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it's you have to accept women as priests or you're not in it and you, you don't get it. And, and th- th- I, I really think that is dinosaur time for them. And this is optimistic. I mean, basically <laughs> I'm saying that you know, women will rise and that that's good. That will that will restore an equilibrium that we lost a long time ago. Well, let's just hope it's the right women rising because that Marjorie Green Taylor, is that her name, in Congress, she's not the kind of woman I want to see rising in my life. So, you know, it has to do with the really embracing not just women doing it, but the, the deeper feminine. No, there's a consciousness that goes with it. It's, and it's not just a question of women rising, it's men too, because they get this developed consciousness. They're more in tune with what is real, or what I would say is God. Uh, the, the, it's, it's not a, a revolutionary thing, but uh, she's, you know, what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing is a bad imitation of a man. Well, you could argue that, but I also argue that that women there there's definitely a dark side to women and the the nature in women and and I think that has to be accepted too and integrated. You know, I'm a big proponent on I don't know how it looks, but how do we integrate the shadow side of the human being whether it's a man or a woman because there are some things that trans uh there that are basically transcendent to gender that it isn't, all of this isn't just related to gender. It's right, it, again, going back to the idea of the whole human being. And, and so well, eventually we won't be talking about gender, hopefully because we'll get, we'll get beyond that at some point, but we'll still be talking about some of these other issues. Well, and, and, but that also gets into uh, Jung's concept that the shadow is not the devil. Right. That the shadow and the devil are two different things. And the... That uh, there's so much that might be considered the dark side of femininity that is not really dark. That is simply that's we ascribe darkness to it because we fear it. Yeah. And uh, you know, and and so I would say it's the suppression of femininity that makes it feel so evil. That makes it uh, come out in ways that are not socially acceptable. Say. And that will be a good topic for another day. We are coming to the end of our show. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on again. And we really appreciate it. 
And thank, thank you. you thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a great week.